Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for April 20th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to forget the latest film and TV news, and we're going to share with you the films that have defined us. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is the whole team, including Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, so I guess before we get into this, uh, Brad, you're the one that suggested we do this on the site, and we're now doing a podcast version of this. Uh, explain where did this Filmstruck 4 thing come from? Yeah, so um, for those of you that don't know, Filmstruck is um, a streaming subscription service out there that allows you uh, a little bit easier access to certain classic and indie movies that aren't necessarily readily available through the more popular channels like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and whatnot. Um, and in an effort to kind of just get a discussion going about movies and also create a viral hashtag that also got their name out there a little more, Filmstruck created this hashtag on Twitter called Filmstruck4, where they asked people to uh, list four movies that they felt defined them. Um, now that is a little bit vague because people, um, interpreted that in different ways, whether it was movies that defined their film taste or movies that defined who they are as a person. And so the, there's been a little bit of a fluctuation between what that has meant, um, for certain people who are doing this on Twitter. Uh, but when we decided to do this, we determined that this, um, would be the films that best defined like our love for cinema and our passion for films and, and where that came from. So uh, each of us did our own hashtag Filmstruck4 and determined which movies were basically the most uh, sort of influential on us and, and uh, shaping our own film tastes. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes that can have an overlap with your favorite films of all time. But, um, and I, you know, th the films on my list are definitely amongst my favorite films of all time, all time but they aren't my top four favorite films of all time. Uh, would you say that's the case with the whole group here? I think... Two of my films are in my like top five favorite films. Yeah, I don't think I, when I wrote my top fifteen for the site a few years ago, uh, none of these films I'm going to mention today were in the top fifteen. 
they're all-time favorites, but they didn't make the list. So I, that's that's where I come from for this. Yeah, I think three... Well, actually, so if you go back and look at my list that I wrote for Slash Film of my favorite movies, uh, there's an Indiana Jones on there, but it's a different one that appears in this list. <laughs> and also, there's another movie. I'll, I'll talk about it when we get to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, these. I mean, these movies are definitely among my favorites. They're, they're definitely not my... Um, absolute top four but they're definitely um much much higher on my list some, some a couple of them much, uh towards the top than other ones at least one of them is in like my top five because it would just be impossible not to include this but i tried to make it a little different okay let, let's just get into it um i think this is going to be interesting because i think this is going to tell you a little bit about us uh in a more deeper way i think um let's start off with uh brad uh, let's talk about the first film on your list. All right, yeah, so the first film on my list, um, I w- kind of went back to my early the early years of my childhood for this because it kind of shaped um, my fandom, if you will, and it's been something that I've loved for a, a very long time, and that's The Empire Strikes Back, which is not only my favorite Star Wars film, um, but it's also one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, the Star Wars trilogy as a whole was something that has just been kind of part of my my life ever since I was a kid. Um, I had the movies on VHS, and I would cart them around with me to aunts and uncles' houses, to to friends' houses, to family friends' houses when my parents would have uh, card nights with their friends. And usually, at some point in the night, Star Wars would end up on screen somewhere. And <laughs> you know, this is it's it's also how like you know I started collecting certain action figures. I had a bunch of Star Wars figures that I brought with me everywhere. And so, The Empire Strikes Back was always the one that I went to the most. And it's actually even more ingrained in my childhood because it's also part of my absolute favorite uh, birthday celebration that I ever had uh, when I was in elementary school for, uh, in 1997, which was when all three of the Star Wars movies were re-released as the special edition. The Empire Strikes Back came out on the exact day of my birthday, and my parents got me and 10 of my friends out of school early to go to the first showing of the uh, of Empire Strikes Back special edition about 20 minutes away, um, saw the movie, and then went to Chuck E. Cheese and had a sleepover afterwards. And to this day, it's still like my favorite birthday party that, I, that I've ever had. And I just, I've always loved Empire Strikes Back. And it, not only is it like a kind of a comfort movie for me, but it's also informed kind of just my perception of how franchises evolve and continue because it's... It's exactly what blockbuster sequels should aspire to be. And not necessarily in the way that everyone thinks where it's like, oh, when people say it's The Empire Strikes Back, you know, of this franchise, like it's just going to get darker and everything like that. It's like, no, it's, it does a lot of interesting things with the characters and challenges them and evolves the universe and, you know, uh, just really immerses you even deeper into the lore of the Force and just the Star Wars galaxy in general. So, yeah, I just Empire Strikes Back is uh, a huge thing for me. That is interesting because I would, I would think most kids probably flocked uh, more towards Return of the Jedi, but I guess it makes sense, uh, especially with the your birthday falling on the the re-release of Empire Strikes Back. Um, but let's move on to Why Train Bowie. Uh, what is the first film on your list? The first film for me was Spirited Away, which actually wasn't the first Miyazaki film I've ever seen. The first one I probably saw was Kiki's Delivery Service. And I talked about that before, where it's kind of that was sort of a huge part of my childhood. But Spirited Away was, I think, the first Hayao Miyazaki film that, and the first film in general that started 
to get me thinking critically about movies. It was a movie that really compelled and sort of confounded me as a kid. Uh, there are so many elements like that I couldn't really understand or really grasp, especially the character of No Face, who was a really strange sort of both amoral but really sympathetic character. Um, and, you know, he was a character that I found myself thinking a lot about. And uh, Spirited Away was a movie that like started getting me to collect Studio Ghibli movies and started getting me to like basically watch watch movies more actively instead of passively. And uh, it kind of turned me into this sort of fake deep person who likes <laughs> to, <laughs> who, who likes to, you know, who likes movies that speak to something, even if I don't really completely understand you, you, it. You were a fake deep girl? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm a fake deep girl. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I Spirit Away was just something that I think changed my life in that uh, in so to speak in, in a way I think it was the movie that really turned me into a film lover just because it is so cinematic and it's so whimsical uh, and so trippy in, in its surreal visuals but still speaks to like the the values um, that I really like uh, connected with as a 10 year old girl the protagonist uh, Chihiro was you know the spoiled brat who went through this amazing arc and it was just to me like something that I connected with but also just could not really fully grasp and that's why this is a movie that really was important to me as a kid yeah it's, it's such a magical and beautiful film uh, I wish I had seen it earlier in my childhood uh, let's move on to Chris what is the first film on your list uh, my first film is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So uh, this isn't even my favorite Spielberg movie, I'd say. But uh, I can remember just – I feel like now we take this for granted. But you know, at the time Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, there's so much stuff happening in that film. And it's all like you – know, there's so many set pieces and there's so many action scenes. And they're all done you know, practically because that's how you, you know, Spielberg had to do it back then. And – I feel like now we can take that for granted, especially when you compare it to like, you know, Ready Player One, Spielberg's new film, which is, you know, a lot of stuff happens in that movie too, but it's all, not all, but primarily created in a computer. And I can just remember seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark as a kid on VHS and just being like, uh, you know, I'm not going to act like I understood everything that was happening, but it just blew me away. There was so much stuff happening in a film and especially compared to other films I had seen at the time where, you know, they were more, low key compared to this film, which is just, you know, this epic adventure on every possible level. And I don't know. It's just were, still... were, were you as obsessed as I was with the face melting scene? Yes. Stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. All, all the gross out disturbing stuff that happens in all of the Indiana Jones films was always my favorite thing, which, cause I was a morbid child, but it just, <laughs> I just loved all that. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, inappropriate stuff in these movies but it, as, as a kid I was just amazed at this stuff and you know it, at the same time it's not even like new it's Spielberg repackaging stuff from serials and adventure novels but at the time I had never seen anything like that so it just it just blew me away and it still holds up to this day I mean it's, it's still an incredible just piece of filmmaking yeah, the Indiana Jones films, I think are you're going to see uh, appear a couple times on these lists. I almost put it on mine, but uh, spoiler, I did not. Let's move on uh, to our next person. That is Jacob Hall. What is the first film on your list? Uh, 
Uh, the first film on my list is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's hard to describe the impact this movie had on me seeing it in middle school, where I did not know comedy could be like this. Um, <laughs> as a kid, I was impressed by how silly it was and how outrageous it was. But revisiting it now, I'm starting to see like how re- how it rewired me, how it got in my brain and spliced my DNA, uh, the way it will have low hu- the lowest of low humor, characters literally wallowing in shit uh, while having like this high-minded conversation about society and politics. And it's like the way it balances high humor at the same time and treats them on the same level is something I found profoundly effective and made me realize that comedy is this ever-evolving personal thing that re- can reflect so much and the movie itself feels so ahead of its time. I mean, I guess uh, so much of the history of comedy, of where it goes over the next 40 years after this movie, is kind of re- reflected here in, uh, in in what it's willing to do, with how it's willing to do it, and how anarchic it is. It just does not, does not care for structure or rules. <laughs> it does not care for uh, what's supposed to be funny. And as somebody who is sort of an offbeat, weird kid who always struggled to find friends and always... Uh, struggle to find his personal identity to see this movie that said your identity can be chaos that's okay it was really important to me so while I was laughing I didn't realize how important this movie would be to informing me that it's okay to like odd things and it's okay to be adventurous and watching these guys make this movie maybe seek out the rest of their stuff which led me to Terry Gilliam and Brazil which is actually my favorite movie so I, I don't I don't know I, I think it just as popular as it is it, it it feels so personal in ways that a movie this silly shouldn't and that's why it, it's it rings so true for me. It's interesting that you say it rewired you because I almost feel like that is one of those kind of comedies that if you grew up watching it, uh, it informed uh, your in your later life your comic timing and your sensibilities of uh, comedy like I feel like people that grew up with Monty Python have a totally different way of like uh, dealing with comedy than uh, people who who did not yeah for sure um, let's move on to Ben Pearson what is the first film on your list uh, the first one for me is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And, of course, this movie is really funny. But in terms of how it shaped me as a film lover, I think the the reason it makes my list is because it really helped establish my love of movies that really love their own characters. And the plot of this film is, like, pretty simple, right? Like, you can boil it down into one sentence pretty easily, like a kid and his friends just skip school and goof off all day. But it, it's not – this movie is not really so much about the plot as it is about – just spending time with these people and getting to know them through their interactions with each other and, and their, the pranks that they pull and, and just sort of like the, the way that, uh, that all of this comes together and, and the way that John Hughes sort of, um, imbued this whole thing with like this carefree sense. I don't know. It it really, uh, it struck me hard back when I was a kid and I actually had a license, a vanity license plate when I was in high school that said day off on it because I love (laughs) this movie so much. Um, and another thing that I like to think, uh, that I guess affected me was Ferris Bueller's anti-authoritarian streak. I mean, this whole movie is about him just like dunking on Rooney as many times as possible. Um, and I I like to, I, I love that aspect as a kid, the idea of just sort of turning your nose up in the face of, uh, of overbearing authoritarianism. So, um, I, I would like to think that rubbed off on me a little bit too. 
Yeah. Um, the, next up is me. Uh, I'll give you my first uh, entry, and that is Back to the Future, which should come as no surprise. Anybody that knows me knows that this is my favorite film of all time. But uh, why is why does this film define me? Uh, the film... You know, I saw this film at a young age with my father, and it was something that we kind of bonded over and would watch uh, more than every year together. And uh, it, it inspired my love of movies. And uh, I loved how marvelously planned the setups and payoffs were in this film. Um, you know, the, this is one of those first films that, like, there's stuff happening in the background that if you watch it, like, you know, two or three times, you start to uh, see that there's, like, not not Easter eggs, but like things happening that like took way more planning than your usual movie. Uh, it inspired my love of filmmaking, uh, my uh, love of uh, screenwriting, which brought me to here to write about uh, movies for a living. Um, it, uh, it instilled in me a what if wonder uh, about the universe and the possibility of uh creating stories that could be different and interesting uh you know i i still read about time travel and the universe and you know i'm still a big science geek and i i i think largely back to the future is uh you know to blame of that i remember as a kid uh doing science uh uh what do you call those like uh science um Experiments? Experiments, yes. Experiments with my mom. Uh, and it is probably largely uh, Doc Brown is responsible for that. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. Back to the Future, largely responsible for, for me as a person. Brad, let's go to your second entry, and that is Ghostbusters. Indeed it is. Uh, this is another one that kind of stretches back to my childhood, but also uh, one that affected me in a little bit of a different way than The Empire Strikes Back did. Um, and that's because Ghostbusters was kind of the first movie I saw that really incorporated um, a strong comedic influence with such a high concept. Um, and that was something that I hadn't really seen much um, at the time that I had seen Ghostbusters. And I, I, I don't uh, try to consider myself you know, sophisticated enough at a young age to be like, oh my gosh, this is the first time you know, I've seen comedy and sci-fi together. But it's it had an influence on me that I didn't quite understand until later in that it allowed me to see this movie where the, the, you know, stakes are high. There's, um, you know, special effects and, uh, adventure and scary things happening, but also all this wisecracking in between it. And I think that this kind of the attitude of this movie and the attitude of the characters, you know, specifically Venkman kind of influenced, I guess, kind of not only my taste for, uh, comedy and you know spicing up any sort of genre with laughs here and there but also just kind of who i am in general because any um anybody who knows me and you guys already know that i'm just a huge smart ass and i'm always taking any opportunity to crack jokes whatsoever and it also you know kind of built my uh penchant for diving into comedy becoming such a huge comedy nerd and you know this movie kind of helped me get into things like saturday night live as well because i started understanding who people like bill murray and dan Aykroyd were and so this was influential in a lot of ways from from my childhood up through my teen years and and things like that. And to this day, I'm a diehard uh, Ghostbusters fan. I have endless art of Ghostbusters on my wall, collect action figures, all that sort of thing. And it's just it's always been this fantastic movie to me that uh, blends the funny with the incredible. And that's not, that's it's very hard to do something like that. That's why a lot of people try to emulate Ghostbusters when they make a movie that has 
high, a high concept, high stakes with comedy. And that's why it's so hard to do. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's really hard to replicate. Yeah. And I, I think like what Jacob was saying with, uh, Monty Python and Holy Grail, this is a movie that I think defines your comedy taste for sure. Especially, you know, knowing you and, uh, your, uh, sense of humor, right? it, you know, Ghostbusters is definitely at the core of that. Um, let's move on to HT's second movie, which is Roman Holiday. So I'm a hopeless romantic at heart. I grew up on a steady diet of rom-coms, and because I was lucky to be born into a family of movie lovers, my family tended to give me gifts that sort of encouraged that. And when I was young, my um, I got for Christmas a box set of Audrey Hepburn movies, which sounds like the most basic thing because, you know, in college, every girl has that poster of Breakfast at Tiffany's on their wall. I did not have that poster because Breakfast at Tiffany's was probably my least favorite Audrey Hepburn film in that box that I had just because, you know, there are a lot of problems in that film, mostly relating to um, Mr. Yunioshi. But uh, the movie that I actually ended up gravitating towards was Roman Holiday, which at first is sort of like this zany screwball comedy in which Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn flit around Rome and have a great time and Audrey Hepburn gets a haircut and it's just wonderful and charming. But then the part that really impacted me was the end, which I guess I'm going to spoil Roman Holiday for you. Um, 50 years later, uh, Gregory Peck, after the press conference in which he finally reveals, well, he sort of comes out as the journalist who was kind of looking for a scoop the entire time for Audrey Hepburn's princess. They have a sort of coded exchange, and then he walks away from the press conference, and, you know, his his footsteps echo down this empty hall, and no one chases after him. And I thought that was so profound. I was incredibly just affected by that as a young girl, and being like, wow, I love my rom-coms, but I love it when they have that bittersweet, really sort of melancholic ending. And... Um, Again, I guess that speaks to my sort of fake deep sensibilities, but I just felt like whenever I ha- see a love story, I get so much more impacted when it's a little bit sad. And Roman Holiday was kind of the beginning of that for me. You know, uh, I often uh, like to publicly shame HT on the podcast about uh, not seeing certain films. I have not <laughs> seen Roman Holiday, so uh, now well, is your time. Sorry for spoiling it for you, Peter. <laughs> No, it's fine. By the time I eventually see it, I probably won't remember what you said about the I ending. I just saw it. I saw it for the first time late last year, and it's incredible. I I really loved it. So uh, I would highly recommend it. If I mean, I'm I'm right there with HT on this one. Okay, let's move on to Chris's uh, second pick, which is Halloween. Uh, yeah. So I'm a I'm a very big horror fan. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Halloween, the holiday. So when I was younger, this you know, this title just spoke to me. It, it like leapt off the shelf at the at the video store. And um, uh, a lot of my the type of horror I tend to like now is very low key, uh, dread based horror. Horror that doesn't really rely on gore and jump scares. Like that tends to be the horror I most enjoy. I mean, I like all horror, uh, you know, all different kinds, but that that's the kind I tend to like the most. And I really think it's because when I was younger, I saw John Carpenter's Halloween, which is a very low key sort of horror movie, especially compared to the sequels, which got, you know, more gory and more graphic and more over the top. Um, the Carpenter original is very, very low key, but it's also very unsettling. Like the whole movie is just building this level of dread that 
very few filmmakers can match. And it's a great example of doing so much with so little. And I don't know, it's just, it's that type of horror film I'm always looking for when I go see a new horror film. And like, I, I can't stand jump scare based horror. It just, it, I hate it. And I, I wish more people would try and do something like this. And this is just the type of horror that stuck with me all my life. Okay. Uh, you know, Halloween, I love Halloween uh, as a holiday. You know, the the movie, I, I think it's because I didn't watch it until I was uh, later in my life. Uh, you know, it didn't uh, personally speak to me. I have other horror films that have like haunted me. Um, but I, I can definitely see that. Um, let's move on to Jacob's number two pick, and that is L.A. Confidential. This one is interesting. I would like to maybe hear everybody chime in real quick after I finish with this, because this was my first favorite movie. I think we all have movies we, we watch oh. endlessly. By, by we the way, kids, we, should, we, should, we should do a slash yeah. answers on first favorite movies. I yeah, think that would I, be interesting. I agree, because I think there's a difference between like the movie you watch over and over the kid, like movie you just have on because you love it, and a movie where you're old enough to recognize, sit back, and intellectually say out loud, hey, this is my favorite movie of all time. I think there's a difference. And I like Confidential, when I saw this maybe in the early 2000s on VHS, <laughs> renting it from Blockbuster, uh, I finished it and immediately watched it again and then decided that evening, oh, that's a, that's my favorite movie. And I, I stayed that way for a, a good long time. And watching it now, I still watch it on the regular. And it's a near-perfect movie. It's one of the best movies in the 90s. It is incredibly entertaining. It is incredibly well-made. It is... Also, uh, a noir about broken systems and broken people. And it's just this pitch-perfect example of what Hollywood can be if it really aspired to genuine quality from every single angle. It, it is just a joy to watch. It is thrilling. It is terrifying. It is upsetting. It has so many great twists and turns. And I, I, I wish I could say, like, oh, here's the art film that I saw or a subtitled uh, foreign film that, that really pushed me really deep into, like, seeking out uh, richer, more complex uh, art house movies, and in, it's not. It was LA Confidential. This this Hollywood movie, In and Out, stars and movie stars, has action and has um has uh beautiful people doing beautiful things. As uh ends in a big shootout. It has all the things you expect from. Does it so perfectly and so artfully that it literally forced me to try to find more like it, maybe more adventurous, and it, so it's really important to me on that level and. We'll use that cue to move on to Ben and uh, his second movie, The Princess Bride. Yeah, so this one is actually not on my favorite movies of all time list, although it very easily could be depending on what day you put those lists together. Um, But the reason that it makes this particular list in terms of how it shaped me and defines me as a, a film fan is because of the sort of kitchen sink aspect of this movie, but it does it so elegantly. There's so much going on here. There's a lot in this movie. It's fantasy, it's romance, it's got pirates and swashbuckling and uh, hilarious lines and um, genuinely moving moments. And and there's just, there's so much there, but it all feels inevitable and it all feels um, perfectly put together and, and just brilliantly constructed. I think as a story and on a story level, William Goldman, the writer, it's, it's one of those movies where you feel the writer being playful with the material, which I, is a feeling that I really like um, in, in my movie watching. And it's also maybe one of the first pieces of meta story, storytelling that I ever saw outside of like old episodes of Looney Tunes and Pinky and the Brain that were like referencing film noir movies that I didn't fully understand when I was a kid. Um, 
but I think I, I have grown to love movies and TV shows like Community and stuff like that, that that tell stories on multiple levels and have all these meta aspects to them. So I, I think that really got started with The Princess Bride and like the performances are great. The the story is great. And it, it's weird because I hated this movie the first time I saw it because I just did not understand what it was doing. But after I realized that it's a film that sort of alternately satirizes and then uh, s- plays into the expectations of classic fantasy stories. I it, it, something clicked in my head of, about this movie, and I've loved it ever since. Okay, uh, and and finally, uh, my number two pick is almost famous. I've never been a huge music or concert person. Uh, but somehow Cameron Crowe's film spoke to me personally. Um, in the past, I've kind of told people that like it kind of it was kind of this weird uh, bit of uh, I don't know uh, just uh, fate, I guess that like I fell in love with this movie and then eventually be- kind of became the character in the movie. You know, uh, writing about a thing and you know traveling and being friends with the the people you're writing about. But uh, the truth of the matter actually is when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I uh, started a pro wrestling news website. This is like one of the, uh, one of my most embarrassing back, you know, the embarrassing backstory of Peter Serretta. Um, uh, I was one of the first pro wrestling websites on the internet. It was called WrestleNet. And uh, my nickname on the site was called The Slammer, uh, which I'm oh sure. Gosh. Yes. Yes. Um, and Big at- Pog fan. Big Pog fan, <laughs> Peter. Yeah. No, no. Body Slam. Uh, and um, and at the time, it, it was a huge site. I was, uh, you know, I was going to high school, but I was making thousands of dollars writing about, you know, pro wrestling. And I was, you know, talking with the wrestlers that I was writing about and pretending that I was not a, you know, kid in high school. And then when they, you know, I'd, I would eventually meet some of these people, they would be like, whoa, it, it was it was totally the almost famous experience. Um, and I, I think that's why I... Uh, you know, relate with that. I was traveling across the country to see these wrestling shows and, uh, you know, pretending not to be a high school kid, uh, and mingling with, uh, the, the wrestlers that I loved. Uh, I, you know, I no longer watch pro wrestling. I do, uh, relate to this movie on a whole other level in this, uh, you know, movie sphere, uh, and, uh, you know, writing about film, starting slash film and, you know, visiting these sets and stuff. It, it, it's just a film that, you know, again, I have no connection to the music, but it has completely mirrored my life in some way, uh, and I just totally relate to it. This is going longer than expected, as with every Slash Film Daily. So I, I, we're, we're only going to do one more final entry from each of our lists, and you can read the full list on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, but let's do this a little bit faster. Let's start off with Brad. What is the the next film in your list? Uh, so the next one on my list would have been Almost Famous, but we share a similar trajectory and passion for that movie for a lot of the same reasons, even though I didn't start a wrestling blog uh, when I was in high school. Um, but uh, You nicknamed so... The Slammer, Brad? <laughs> yeah, but that's for other inappropriate uh... reasons. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I actually went with, I'm going to go with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, that was actually the first movie that I saw um, it, it was right towards the end of my high school career as I was heading into college, and uh, it's the the movie that I attribute to expanding my horizons and realizing that there were more movies out there than just the usual kind of mainstream blockbuster studio movies that I had become accustomed to seeing a lot. 
Um, I, I was really excited about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind because I grew up loving Jim Carrey and I was interested in seeing him start to do more dramatic movies. And this movie looked like, unlike anything that I had seen before, um, and I, I was obsessed with it ever since seeing the trailers. And so I saw it immediately as it came out, as soon as it was close enough to where I lived to be able to see it. And before Eternal Sunshine, there were all these uh, other trailers for other indie movies that, you know, because um, this was a Focus Features movie. And at the time, they were like the king of pushing out great indie movies along with Fox Searchlight and whatnot. So it just kind of opened up my horizon to all these other movies out there from uh, auteur filmmakers. And I really started like digging deep into movies that were harder to find and that usually got limited releases. But on top of that, Eternal Sunshine also kind of has this personal connection to me simply because of the fact that I can was definitely like kind of a, a hopeless romantic if you were in high school and still I am still am now and see some of some of the sad sack elements of Joel Barish in, in me and how I approach relationships and things like that. Uh, but what I just loved was the genuine authentic approach to relationships in this movie and it really kind of shaped my um, you know idea of kind of how love can be so fulfilling and uplifting but also so heartbreaking and, and crushing at the same time and it's it's really been a movie that has stuck with me over the years and i think what's most fascinating about it is that for the longest time i can i saw the ending of eternal sunshine as being sort of uplifting joel and clementine kind of maybe a, a looking past the flaws that they have seen in each other in their previous encounter and also that they hear recounted on the tapes that were sent to them from the Lacuna employee played by Kirsten Dunst. But then I, uh, Camille Nanjiani said something on an episode of You Made It Weird where he talked about how the ending is actually really sad because it's these two people who can't reconcile their feelings for each other and realize that they're not good for each other. And it totally just changed like my perspective and made me realize how kind of beautiful the film is that you kind of see in it what you want to see in it and how the way that we approach relationships. And so it's, it's one that has stuck with me for a long time. Brad, I said do a faster version. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I, love, I love movies. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, HT's uh, final entry on this podcast. So my final entry is Beauty and the Beast, which is kind of a twofer because the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast was a movie that really impacted me as a kid. And it made me seek out the Jean Cocteau 1946 film, uh, La Belle et la Bête. So this is a film that has just the most opulent, gorgeous visuals. It's incredibly um, beautiful, but has this sort of grotesque element to it. And it speaks to my love to fairy tales, but also uh, for my sort of through line of loving films that have gorgeous visuals that shield an ugly or sort of sad truth. And um, it, has, it also kind of started my love for like gothic romance in general. So I absolutely love Beauty and the Beast. I recommend watching the Jean Cocteau version just because it is incredibly gorgeous. And it's a little bit unsettling too in the way that he um, combines like this classic elegance with really strange um, design choices that are made to sort of remind you that this is a heightened and weird cast enchanted castle and something that is something outside of the realm of reality. I haven't seen this film in many years. I, I think I have to revisit it. Uh, Chris, what is the final movie for this podcast? Uh, Goodfellas. So I was probably 10 when I saw Goodfellas the first time, which is way too young, but uh, <laughs> my, my father was super Italian. So he was really into showing me all movies about Italians, even if they were violent mafia films. And, uh, so uh, Goodfellas was the first film I think I actually ever realized 
that filmmaking was a thing. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I understood everything in that movie or like, the shots, but I can remember seeing that that tracking shot. There's, there's a famous tracking shot in Goodfellas where uh, it goes under this the, the Copacabana and it keeps going. And I didn't know what the hell a tracking shot was at that age, but I remember being like, oh, this is different than every other movie I've ever seen up until this point. This is something else. And it just sort of stuck with me. It became that sort of uh, catalyst to make me uh, a big film nerd. And I've, I've been a huge Martin Scorsese fan ever since. Jacob, what is your final film? Well, my final film is a Universal Monsters movie, which shouldn't surprise people who know me. But the, the actual movie is a little more It's different. It's off the beaten track. It's The Creature Walks Among Us. Uh, the 1956 film, which is the third film in the Creature from the Black Lagoon series. And while nowadays I'd probably call Bride of Frankenstein my favorite Universal Monster movie, uh, this one is one that is really stuck with me. Uh, AMC used to have uh, movie marathons every October where they would show hours and hours and hours of old black and white horror movies. And this one, I sat on a watch it thinking it was going to be just another monster rampage movie, and it really jarred me. Because it begins like the first two movies, uh, humans go to the rainforest, they find the creature, the, the gill man, and havoc ensues. But in this one, very early on, the gill man is burned horribly by the humans who take his body back to America and transplant lungs into him to save his life. And, now, and then try to train him to live among humans. So it's this creature uh, who the past two movies has been a villain, suddenly is in this sympathetic light where... Uh, he's trying to be forced to live amongst humanity who are who are cruel and evil. And even though, yeah, he's a monster who's killed people, he's just an animal. And watching this tragic movie play out, it, it's genuinely a tragedy in the same level as the original Frankenstein was and the best universal monster movies are. And it reminds me now that, like, uh, Shape of Water it got a lot of acclaim last year and won Oscars for sympathizing with monsters and, and portraying them as uh, not quite human, but, but like... Uh, intelligent beings worthy of our love and admiration and respect whereas creature walks among us was was doing a similar thing uh 60 years earlier uh in definitely more b-movie fashion <laughs> uh but it definitely made me reconsider how i view monsters in the movies which made me reconsider how i view people in the real world and like i said it's definitely hokey it's definitely uh cheesy especially compared to the best universal monster movies but it really is an unsettling portrait of humankind at its worst and monsters at their best Ben, what is your final movie? Uh, my final choice for this list is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Chris already talked about it, so that'll save me a lot of time in terms of covering the ground there. But I think everybody you know, of a certain age grew up watching this film and being completely blown away by it. The Raiders was my version of Star Wars. So all the things Brad was talking about with Empire, all, all of that essentially just ports over to me with Raiders. And uh, this weirdly, this movie did not make my top list, even though it's one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I put Last Crusade on there because I really just those films are like almost depending on the day, one is better to me than the other. But uh, Raiders is the one that I saw first, and it's the one that really left a, a lasting impact. And it really showed me at a young age how the idea of new current filmmakers remixing older influences into something new and exciting can actually like elevate the ele elevate beyond the source material that they were working from. So uh, yeah, Raiders all the way. Yeah, Raiders is great. I almost considered putting on my list, but uh, the final film I'm going to leave you with is Star Wars. 
Uh, yes, I'm going to cheat and say Star Wars as a franchise because I can't choose a particular film. Uh, while I've certainly seen Back to the Future uh, many more times than all the Star Wars films combined, uh, I've definitely spent more of my life concerned with George Lucas's Galaxy Far, Far Away. Uh, my grown-up house, quote-unquote, is lined with Star Wars posters looking more like I guess an elegant kids room. Uh, my wardrobe mostly consists of pop culture t-shirts. I, uh, I wear my fandom on my sleeve and my excitement and anticipation for the next chapter always leads me to overanalyze every trailer bit, uh, theorizing, geeking out with friends, uh, camping out, uh, overnight for the prequels, uh, or, you know, in line at Star Wars Celebration has become almost as important to me as the fe- the film at the end of The Yellow Brick Road. And yes, in, co- in the case of the Star Wars prequel, sometimes I find, like Dorothy, that the wizard at the end of the road is not who I hoped for. Uh, and learned that it was all about the journey with friends along the way. Um, and, you know, S- Star Wars has, you know, that it, my fandom of movies, my, my movie fandom. I'm not saying it's the way everybody should be a fan. It definitely is not. Uh, but star Wars has influenced that, uh, greatly. Um, and each of us have one more entry on our list, which I'm not going to spoil here. You can go read them on slash home.com. I will link it in the show notes. Um, and, uh, yes, I am not, we're not going to do an outro because we've already gone way too long. This podcast last from daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television and deeper dives into the great features on slash home.com like this one here you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send us your feedback questions comments and concerns at peter at slash home.com please go rate and review this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you on monday